solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. It is really neat. I walked in and I saw um, Liz watching that documentary before work before she had to go to work a couple weeks ago and i like i caught it at just the right time and i'm like standing there in the room on the side of the bed like enthralled what is that yeah i i think you sent me the article first and i read through it and i was like ah i wish i had something to watch for this because i'm bored and i love documentaries and then you sent that without me asking yeah it was um it was it was really good. I think for our viewers that don't know what we're talking about, Netflix has a new documentary called Unknown Cave of Bones, I think it is. And it's about a humanoid species that um, at least a dozen or so bodies have been found in the back of this cave that's incredibly difficult to get to. Um from 300,000 years ago that predates it has suggestions of deliberate ritual burials that predates the earliest known homo sapien burial by like some 200,000 years or something stupid like that yeah it's either they were putting their dead there or they all got unlucky and died in there together which is still possible as well um because it is really hard to get in and out of so i could see um how one could get horribly lost um but they also suggested that they must have had fire to do that which is just cool in general yeah because it is so far back in the cave it's um They were either completely blind and stupid and got lost there and all died, or they had torches and purposely navigated in and out. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there was, and they supposedly found early rudimentary carvings in the walls. Um, Those were convincing. Yeah, whether it's early forms of pictograph or writing, I don't know, but it was obviously some kind of marker in some mm -hmm. capacity, right? Whether it was just idle boredom and they needed to do something with their early primate brain, right? Or whether it was deliberate um, abstract representations, either directions, hey, go this way, or whatever it is they were using to conceptualize what it was they were doing. Yeah, like just adding meaning in general to the area or just doing it mindlessly. But usually <laughs> we do things on purpose for a reason. Um, and those did look very purposeful. And I think the cool thing was that they sort of connected it to lots of other very ancient carvings, which are all just parallel straight lines um and i could that seems to be a very natural thing for people to carve just 
Yeah, it it reminds me of like an early cuneiform. Right. So like the it's like the type of shapes that the preschoolers doodle that evolve into the letters that third and fourth graders use. Right. Yeah. Um the 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 hashes and the crosses and the squares and the boxes and all of that stuff like it does it it hints of cuneiform um you know like the old sumerian and babylonian script where it's all straight lines and arrows and that's how they they make their stuff um i think most interesting for me about that documentary and in that discovery was the question that the documentary poses that you know some of these integral social interactions and rituals that we have as human beings such as um burials and community grief and things that we do to build solidarity within our communities what if we learned those skills from not homo sapiens right we think that like yeah. what it means what it means to be human is to have self-reflection to have meaning in our patterns to be yearning for an understanding of what life is as more than just you're a clump of cells that exists hang on for the ride and you know what if that entire concept came from not humans i think that is you mean not humans as in another animal or right, yeah and, and, like another type of homo genus is that our genus yes yes genus species. um <laughs> and and to to clarify i mean not human beings yes okay yeah because i was like we are going aliens animal or what i was thinking <laughs> um yeah i think there's evidence that elephants bury their dead and mourn and have funerals and when one of their members dies they call people over and they all stand there and have some sort of you know sub sonic conversation about you know that this person is dead and they know that um and so like one of the reasons that they said like homo naledi could not have buried their dead is because it's an incredibly complex behavior and their brains weren't um like physically couldn't do something that complicated but we see it in animals um and it's not like you know you know they're not like setting fires with elephants um, but they are like mourning and um you'll see that with whales as well where they're um uh, you'll see that with whales as well where when their calf dies they will you know hold it at the surface and um like the ways they protect it are incredibly complicated and the difference between like complicated and not complicated behavior is really just lifespan because you know a two-year-old's behavior is pretty simple a four-year-old's behavior is much more complicated and it's kind of just the amount of time you get to live um and learn and you know uh, so the brain is definitely a limiting factor, but not impossible.
Yeah, and, and I had to think a little bit more about my object permanence into afterlife, into religion, evolution hypothesis, mm -hmm. because... You know, I I don't, I am do not have a PD PhD in neuroevolution, right? Um, so I don't know exactly when the areas of the brain that governs the concept of object permanence started evolving in mammalian species, um, especially the the hominids. So. You know, it, it might alter my timeline a little bit, but I reckon it'll be impossible for us to accurately determine. But if we could find that Homo naledi had enough of a prefrontal cortex to abstractly, cognitively represent the concept of object permanence, right? So like... Why begin a practice of returning to the same areas to bury your dead? And I know we've talked about this a little bit before with um, hunter-gatherer migratory routes and things like that. You can make the argument that that's what the elephant graveyards are, is um, the repositories that are out of the way enough but consistent enough in their routines that they have a place to go to that's sectioned off from life or the, the the grazing grounds or whatever, which we can tie into mythology here in a little bit if we want to. It's kind of like the whole Garden of Eden idea, right? Um, but I would venture to guess that to deliberately and ritualistically bury someone that's deceased would be an indicator of the ability to conceptualize that person or that thing even when it's not around and by that yeah. i mean that Maybe this could be the link in the chain of suggesting somewhere around this era, humanoid creatures are beginning to evolve the, just because I can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. And that's translating into, just because I can't interact with them doesn't mean they're not there. And maybe through a combination of convenience and recognizing that properly, quote unquote, disposing of your deceased is better than leaving them out because it'll attract predators or, you know, spoil the water, whatever, whatever the situation might be. A combination of that with the beginnings of, I don't know what to call it. I don't have a name for it yet, but 
last time we talked about it um a couple episodes ago i uh i think i said something about like you know grandma passes and if you have an i a concept of object permanence even after she's buried you can interact with that idea you still have of her mm-hmm. And then if you have enough prefrontal cortex, you can abstractly represent cognitively grandma, or at least your idea of her. You can paint that image up onto a wall, and it's not too far away before you can go to that static image and infer how your representation of your long-deceased grandmother would give you advice in this specific situation right does that make sense the same way that and and, well and we know the the contemporary human brain can do that because there have been tests that suggest that um information is presented to somebody a mathematical equation but it's only presented long enough for you to capture a portion not the entirety and then it gets removed from your stimuli but the human brain can continue processing and using predictability patterns, fill in the blanks for what would have been the rest of the formula and continue to compute that information. I'm thinking that somewhere in that chain between Homo naledi and the Neanderthal and the early Homo sapien cave paintings, you know, 50,000 years ago, that that trait evolved predominantly to be able to see buffalo paint buffalo interact with painted buffalo in such a way that it becomes a spirit if you will you interact with the spirit of the buffalo and you know the the next step from that is you know like i said grandma passes so you bury your grandma and you paint a portrait of her in your cave and when you have a problem when you have an issue when you need advice when you don't know what to do next you can go and confer and interact with that abstract image the quote-unquote spirit of grandma you do that for 10 generations and it's not grandma anymore it's your local deity there's a lot of evidence or you know this is kind of true overall if it feels like your brain is doing it then it probably actually is and they've done you know functional fmris of people who are praying and the conversation part of your brain lights up in the exact same way it would as if you were having a conversation with someone who's literally in front of you. And so if you're imagining a conversation, your brain is actually using the part that it would for a real conversation. So talking to, you know, a static painting is using all of the same parts of your brain as if that was real. So it is, you know, very natural. We don't have a way to not talk about something or think about something without using that part of our brain. It's not, why would that be in there? It's not in there. So it is real. You know, that is, that would very easily happen where I'm talking to something. I feel like it hears me because that's part of your brain that you're using, which for some people, you know, it's incredibly comforting. Like praying is something that people find, you know, like actually helpful and you know, therapeutic and calming. And that's because they feel heard and they feel like, you know, something was there because that's what their brain actually just did. And I can see how, you know, with creating a mythology, it would not be 
crazy or hard or even complicated. It would be as difficult as having a conversation with someone who already is there. Um, so I think there's nothing but evidence for that. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think, now I don't have any credentials or research to back this up. It's just a hunch. But I think that that whole process, at least in part, stems from object permanence. Because, I mean, if, if you don't have object permanence, then that ability to abstract represent abstractly represent something is non-existent. And I don't mean the thing being abstractly yeah. presented is non-existent. I mean, the ability to do that is non-existent, right? I think it might not be the functional piece, but I think it is a functional piece. So do you think that a step further is to say that your brain thinks that it's actually there in front of you? Or is that a step too far for your idea that it's an abstract. That's a good question. Because I think there's religions that do both. Well, like Christianity is definitely like, it's over there. You'll they'll hear you. You won't hear back. But and then other well, religions who are much more interactive. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that at least with the religious traditions of the last four to 5,000 years, that the pilgrimage is an important part of the faith, right? To go and touch the holy is part of that process. That's why Muslims face Mecca when they pray. That's why the Egyptians built pyramids. So it wasn't to the original concept of the pyramids as tombs were not to isolate the Pharaoh from society, but to create a temple for people to go and continue venerating and worshiping the Pharaoh as Osiris. Right. It was intended to be a pilgrimage. To, I mean, that's what graveyards, that's why we have headstones at graveyards now, to go and visit, to see that person, to see that thing, to interact with that in some kind of capacity, whether whether I go to the Vatican and imagine that Christ is there too, I think is a bit of a stretch for reasonable people. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative or derogatory way against what would be unreasonable by that. It is like definitely, yeah. Or like God talks to me is like a red flag mental health issue. Uh, in, you know, in, God's in my house. So yeah, we have definitely... You know, it could be healthy or it could not be healthy. But I think having a focal point or a nexus with which to ground our intuition, if we want to be reductionistic and say that that's what religious insight is, is just tuned intuition. 
having that, I mean, that's why that's how snowflakes form. And I know that's that's a weird jump there, but there has to yeah. be right, th <laughs> yeah, there, <laughs> there has to be something for that icicle to start growing off of. Uh -huh. Yes. Right. There has to be that focal point, whether it's a cross or you turn and you face Mecca, or as Sam Harris has said, you know, you stepped out of the shower and your hair dryer spoke to you. Right. There there has to be that thing with which to as a focal point for our intuition. And it is that tuning that allows our intuition and insight to be productive, drowns out the noise that as, you know, the, the pagans or Wiccans would say that intention, right? You pour your intention out, right? That's, that's the whole like modern witchcraft idea is that you project your intentions into the world and that intentionality and mindset shift causes a change in your reality. I was thinking that the like two necessary things that your species needs in order to start being religious, like generally, is like a family structure, like elephants in the herd, and then also members of that species who live a long time because they need to have a lot of life experience in order to get to pretty complicated behavior. And then the younger people mimic that behavior or they're taught what it is. And then they live a long time. And then that's how you get something that is, to me, that would be the focal point. The thing that sparks it has got to be someone who is matured enough, you know, the first person to bring, or the first like homo naledi to, potentially bring in the dead body into the cave would have been an elder because like a 10 year old wouldn't think to do that. And, you know, an 18 year old wouldn't think to do that, but someone who is 45 and has seen multiple people die and has been through that experience before would start to have more complicated behavior around death because of that experience, which I think is true with all, not all, but many religions start with someone who you know it's never a four-year-old who's starting cults um and that's really interesting because we'd have to imagine that an individual of that sufficient life experience and maturity would be physically disadvantaged from doing the deed. It's already suggested based on just the layout of the cave and the location from where the bodies were found that it was not a one-person endeavor. It was a multiple-person multiple project to be able to move the deceased that far back in the cave But it would definitely take that that elder concept as the leader, I think, is important. I don't think it would happen without that. 
which is why, you know, species like elephants who live a long time have incredibly complicated behavior when it comes to members dying. And they live long enough to pass that on. And social group evolution is an integral and I don't know if it's a spandrel. Right. So like when you graph something and you get that offshoot that does its own thing, Mm -hmm. right? That's what a spandrel is. Unrelated, but correlates. So I don't know if it's a spandrel or in tandem, but I can see those interactions of the elder leading the behavior that confers social reward on the younger participants, reinforcing that behavior and social dynamics. And they feed right. the the right, those those two things feed into each other and they promote each other. And then you know, you create that feedback loop and fast forward 300,000 years and here we are. Building houses. Um, yeah, I think also you'll see religions die usually during times when people are not able to meet in big groups, such as war, floods, famine, plague. Um, that's when, you know, societies will kind of collapse and then they'll start over doing something else. But it doesn't take that long of a disruption where, you know, you're not able to meet as a group and you're not able to connect with your elders for that to disappear. And then something else forms in that vacuum. Yeah, which is why we have so many, you know, eras or like dead religions. And then there's 300 years of nothing. And then we see something else pop up once people will kind of, you know, a new city is formed and then it goes from there. There's obviously a lot of other more practical reasons why those cultures will die. Like the people are dead who did them. Um, but that's got to be a factor as well. And I think I think you touched on something important there. The, the theme of devolution corruption, instability, and rebirth. Only Siths deal with absolutes, so I'm not going to say all, but I know (laughs) a good majority of the early mythologies and religions, those cosmologies and origin stories, what are they? They are the sea of chaos. They are instability. They are the collapse of some you know, civilization like Atlantis that sets the stage, that creates the world for the current civilization to grow and inhabit. Right. That's the the flood seems to be a recurring mm-hmm. theme and motif in almost every ancient mythology the war of the gods seems to be a recurring motif in every mythology and it is in the aftermath as the dust settles from the war of the gods that things become stable enough for human beings to start arising i think i think that that concept might be what you're touching on there i found a list of like creation myth classifications where 
there was like five or six of them, which I never heard of before in my life, but the um, like emergence myths are, is an umbrella term for when progenitors pass through a series of worlds until they reach the present world. So they emerged sort of through various evolutions. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's creation by dismemberment of a primordial being, creation by splitting or ordering primordial. So there was like these sort of overarching themes in cultures that were, you know, thousands of years and thousands of miles apart where um, I personally could not make any sense, but none of it made sense to me. Um, But I thought it was interesting that you were able to do that in general to make the list and i've put a lot of thought into that and i can make sense of some of it and i'm not saying that as a hearty toddy look what i can do but as a that is a topic that i want to get into in this episode um but i'm not ready to do that yet we have about six minutes left before we take our break and i don't think that'll be enough time I do like the idea of the emergent creation myth, right? So like the Time Lords, or like that's what Rick and Morty is to a, to a degree. That's what they allude to, right? Popping into different dimensions until you find one that suits you. And then the story picks up from there. Um, which is interesting because I would like to look at some of those emergent myths and peel back a couple of those layers because thinking about it just now that story doesn't describe the start it describes the start of that nesting egg right if we have if, if we have the russian nesting dolls and we're like in the third one we don't get the story of how the whole thing got created we get the story of how our specific nesting doll got created so I wonder right. it's like that, you know, where we live on the back of a turtle. And it's turtles all the way down. Until you ask them, yeah, what's what is a turtle on? Like, well, it's just turtles it's, all the way down. Yeah, it's turtle. Don't overthink it. It's turtles all the way down. And <laughs> it it seems silly, but for all we know, that could be the case because look at what we found in physics and quantum physics. Right. Matter is made of molecules, which is made of atoms, which is made of subatomic particles, which is made of even smaller subatomic particles. Right. We've got we are finding a lot of turtles. <laughs> and, yeah. And it goes all the way down. For all we know, you can split a photon into constituent parts. And then those constituent parts can be split into constituent parts. As far as we know, we have not hit bedrock yet and there's a very real possibility that as our technology increases there is no bedrock or that's fun or rather phenomenologically the bedrock is always shifting before we could take a picture of an atom the atom was the bedrock because that's the deepest that we could conceptualize. Then we discovered evidence for pieces of an atom because our technology increased. And then that bedrock went just a little bit deeper. And that was the new bedrock. 
So we'll bust through the bottom of the bedrock eventually and end up on the other side. Or that bedrock boundary will just go deeper. Right. That's that, that's what I'm talking about. Ph phenomenologically, meaning from our perceived experience, there is a bedrock. And that is the limit of our observable reality. And then when we increase technology and we can observe more of reality, that new boundary becomes the bedrock. Now, I don't know how far out that, I mean, that what that might expand turtles all the way down, right? Bedrock all the way down. But if we're talking functionality, that current boundary that we're at, that we cannot cross. So I, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the concept of space-time and well, I'll just say that the concept of space-time seems to be that bedrock boundary that we're pushing through right now. Because we, I mean, it's only in the past decade or so that we've actually been able to photograph using gamma radiation or whatever, like actual black holes. Mm -hmm. And those disrupt space-time. Yeah. Right. So as our technology increases and we can actually measure and chart and go deeper into black holes to see how space-time gets dissolved into whatever's beyond space-time, then that boundary is going to shift. And then, which is crazy because if space-time is not fundamental, if reality can exist without space-time, every single thing about your lived experience becomes questionable. On a macro scale, yes. Or is that a micro scale? I think that would be whether you want to talk physics or philosophy. From the scale of physics, and I think there's evidence to suggest this, how to explain it beyond this, I don't know. I am way underqualified. But matter and space-time don't appear to be the fundamental building blocks of reality. Oh, yeah. Because, because if they were, black holes wouldn't exist. Right. Black holes Observable. disrupt. Right. Black holes disrupt Observable. both. So what does that mean? That means that we don't know what reality is made out of. We just know the parts of reality that we can interact with. Right. That's true. Yeah. Because observable and, things moving through time are the only things that we can look at right now. And we are increasing what is observable. Haven't really touched on the moving through time part. <laughs> yes, because it seems that if space-time is not fundamental, then our understanding of time is incorrect. Or at least when we zoom out to scale is not sufficient or completely irrelevant or both. But let's take a break and...
we'll make our noses bleed from thinking too hard. <laughs> so here's the cool thing about the various different possibilities of what reality fundamentally is if it's not matter and space time yeah okay because i have not looked into this at all and uh you're you're spitting some knowledge at me well i've, I've brought them up a whole lot of times in various different contexts but dr donald hoffman from what I can understand of his theories, which is not much because he's like a neurophysicist. Um, and I don't math in public if I can avoid it, although I do play with the concepts. As I understand it, his theory is, or his and his team's theory, is that the underlying fabric of reality is a network of consciousness. I'll explain what I what I think I mean by that in a minute, but here's his argument for starting for consciousness as a starting point. If we well, it's 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 essentially Occam's razor, where you know the theory that makes the least amount of assumptions to the most amount of explanatory value is the one that we should default to. His theory would suggest that if we assume that matter and space-time is fundamental, then we also have to make the assumption that consciousness exists as a thing. Right? Because it's a secondary order thing, it would have to be something that is generated within matter and space-time. And we don't know that it is. So okay, like, right. the example or one of the examples that he uses is using mathematics and science, explain to me the taste of chocolate. You can't. We haven't figured out how yet. We understand it. We can't even we do it with English. But we can use adjectives in, in right? We can use metaphorical language. Right. We have yeah, to use okay. And this is where, if we want to go postmodern, Jacques Derrida has some truth that we have to continuously use language that refers to reality to try and explain reality. And that creates an infinite deferral of meaning because in order to explain what those words mean, you have to use more words. And you continuously use these constructs all the way down to explain something that's detached from the construct and we can never get to the detached part. But that's a different conversation for a different time. Okay, so like explain what the inside of your mouth tastes like. Cans. Right. And that's and where your tongue is. Okay, there's yeah. no there's there's no mathematical formula that you can use to put up on the whiteboard and say, this is the taste of chocolate, or this is the feeling of rain, or this is the smell of a shower, or anything like that. We can roughly take an fMRI and see that parts of your brain do activate, but how that generates your experience, we don't know. So there's two assumptions in that theory. We have to assume that space, time, and matter are fundamental, like are a thing. And then we have to assume that consciousness can be generated from that. Whereas if okay. we drop one of those assumptions and just assume that consciousness is 
existed. He and his team think they have found the mathematical formulas to explain how matter and space-time are emergent from that. So therefore, their theory only has one assumption with more explanatory value. Now, so is that like a chicken and the egg thing? Yes. Okay. If you take the reductionist materialist view of like Richard Dawkins or something like that, you assume that all there is is matter. And somehow if you arrange that matter in the right way, now it's conscious. Right? Because we're we're uh -huh. we're, we're all all of the building blocks of us are the same as the building blocks in the stars. Right? If we use the classical physics approach, the after the Big Bang, we had a series of evolutions of stars and galaxies that were born, grew, and died. And the explosions of those dying stars is what spread matter throughout the, the increasingly sized universe. And then that matter rearranged in such a way as to become us having this conversation today. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, right. Because the idea that matter explains everything is not good enough because... It's matter in empty space, which doesn't explain the empty space at all. And but that's, that's probably that's the, the bigger fact. There's more empty space than stuff. And it, it brings us back to the whole, is your brain a generator or a radio tower? Does your brain generate consciousness or does it receive consciousness? Yeah. And I don't I don't know if receive is the right term to use there, but that's just the first thing to come to mind to, to, to keep it straightforward and simple. Like now, channel. Yeah. Here's the whole consciousness first idea then. Um Oh, that's a long, awkward pause. Well, let me let me do this, and then I'll try and tie it to two together because my brain's not braining properly, right? I'm struggling to find the words to start. And like I tell my students, if you're struggling to find the right words to start with, start with the wrong words first. The other week, we had our first philosophy club meeting of this school year and I played a little experiment with them and I'm hoping that I can use that to explain the consciousness first thing now. We had about five or six students that I've had for the past couple years and when the meeting started I sat down on the table next to them and I said I want to play a game. And then I waited a couple minutes and I asked them why aren't you playing? Uh -huh. And then, right. And then what, what happened was I figured one of two things would happen. I figured that either they would continue not knowing what to do. And then that would be my, my springboard into the conversation or what they did. They immediately started negotiating as a social group games that they all loosely already knew the rules to with which to narrow down their option pool to a small enough number of options that they could pick something and then could play a game, right? Um, 
rock, paper, scissors, or, or the, the hand slap game are, are good examples. If you turn kids loose and just say, do something, right? Those are things that they kind of default to because we all kind of intuitively know the nature of those games. But then I asked them, you know, what did I do? And I thought for a minute, and I and I had to, to give them a prompt for this one. I presented them with an infinite possibility space. And with that infinite possibility space and no boundaries at all, they were incapable of acting. Almost like choice overload. It, it, it's psycho psychologically, it's the same phenomenon as choice paralysis, if we want to use that loose connection there you're scrolling through netflix and next thing you know it's been an hour and a half and you could have watched the whole movie but you didn't because you had too many options so you couldn't decide on one and you couldn't act and engage right and i wanted them to think about that for a little bit because it it's particularly germane to what we've been talking about for a lot of this episode and what I've been thinking about for a lot, a lot of time in preparation for this episode, that it is in the limitation of infinite possibility space that that space can become meaningful and useful. Yeah. And I don't want to take full credit for this idea because I listened to a podcast episode with Dr. Donald Hoffman and Tom, I think his last name is Bill Yu. I, don't know how to pronounce it, um, the Impact Theory podcast. And he was talking about that. Tom was talking about that. And I'm going to borrow his example here. So to give full credit where credit's due, this is not mine. This is his. Imagine an AI art generator. What is it? It's every conceivable picture that could be perceived all at one time. It is that infinite possibility space a screen where there's enough pixels of enough colors that it can reproduce any image ever conceivable. It could be the Mona Lisa. It could be us having this conversation right now. It could be the ancient pyramids being built. Until a prompt is entered into that pos infinite possibility space to give it boundaries to work with, it is a constant sensory overload and it's essentially imperceptible because there's nothing that we can make meaning with presenting itself because it's just too much. It is in the narrowing down of that possibility. It is the limitation, the setting of rules that we get value, we get meaning, we get a conscious experience. As I understand it, Dr. Hoffman's consciousness first idea is that, that reality is an infinite possibility space of consciousness. And it is in the imposition of rules such as physics and space-time that that consciousness can have an experience that's relatable in any capacity to be considered an experience, right? So that whole we are the universe experiencing itself that but taken more literally than just you are the atoms of dead stars from the beginning of the universe that now have consciousness to experience the now living stars right it's that it's that taken a step further so and this might not be quite in the same line but 
I personally have context that the atoms that make up my house look like a house to me because I'm perceiving them that way, but that is not necessarily how, like there's other possibilities. An alien could come in and be like, what is this trash pile? This looks like nothing. Well, um, yes, but uh, here I'm going to start inter interweaving my own ideas into it as well. Imagine all of those possibilities all stacked up all at the same time, almost like interdimensionally. And we are only evolved, and this is Dr. Hoffman's idea again, we are only evolved to see reality in a certain kind of way. There is zero evolutionary benefit using game theory of a creature's evolving to see reality as it really is. In fact, right. in in the game theory simulations that have been ran, the subjects that are evolved to see the nuts and bolts foundation of reality underperform evolutionarily compared to their counterparts that are evolved for efficiency. Ah, yeah, that makes your, sense. Your room, your house is filled with matter and stuff. Can you see air molecules? No, but they're everywhere in there. Right. Yeah. You're 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 not we're not evolved to perceive that scale. So if depending on whichever way you scale, maybe both ways, that range of possibilities is all stacked up. What we are is we are a particular instanti instantiation of a particular set of rules in a particular universe under this particular umbrella, all housed within that range of infinite possibility. Sure, because we have exactly the right amount of color receptors in our eyes that we need in order to function pretty well. Some animals have less. Some animals have a lot more. Like the mantis shrimp. It always, it's, always fascinates me that the mantis shrimp can see like six times the range of color or whatever. That number is going to be wrong. Yeah. So I don't remember it off the top of my head. But it's, there are it's some ridiculous. Who, yeah. Like most humans have three, I believe. And there are some humans who have five. And then there's obviously a bunch of humans who, you know, either don't have any or are missing one or two. Um, but for the most part, <laughs> we have the ones that we need. Um, and like, I do sometimes think about those like five color perceptors, which are usually women, but not always, who have, you know, extra color receptors in their eyes. So their just color discrimination is incredibly good. So like, you know, one shade of green is a little bit different and they can tell, you know, like this leaf is a thousand shades of green versus someone who, you know, has like red, green color blindness sees it as one shade of gray. Um, and that's, that's always been cool to me, but that's kind of a tangent that we have the tools that we need to find food and find, you know, shelter, find a mate, reproduce. And other than that, there are people who have more than they need. Um, but well, for the and, most part, we've got and only what all, we need. Also too, if we shift focus from the physical world to the metaphysical we can do the same thing with your life or my life i the only reason i am the person that i am 
is because of the unique life experiences that I've had. If we alter the possibilities for any of my prior life experiences, in a very real sense, I am fundamentally a different person. Right. And it is in the, out of the infinite possibility of people that you could be, it is the, imposition of a variety of different external factors outside of your control that you are thrown into right that's that's heidegger's geforfen height or the, the flungness the thrownness you were thrown into a reality with a certain set of pre-existing conditions that are out you, you don't get to choose your parents or your socioeconomic class that you're born into or the region or the time or any of those things right and genetics, your right, and it, it may be a cruel trick of fate that we are just thrown into this existence, and we just have to make do with what we have. But also at the same time, it is in the imposition of those pre-existing conditions that you are who you are. I think there's something much deeper than memory as well, because you'll find people who have, you know, very severe amnesia for whatever reason, you know, trauma, brain tumor, something. And that doesn't change their, not being able to access those memories does not change their personality or their preferences. They don't know why strawberries make them nauseous, but it still does. So there's something even more than being able to pull up that memory of, you know, when you had a strawberry cake and it, you got food poisoning and now you hate strawberries. Um, they found, you know, again and again, like if this was your career before you got amnesia for whatever reason, you still enjoy it afterwards if you did before. So it's more, your brain is doing something that you don't know about all the time. And that tends to really bother people because we like to feel like we're in control but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we ever access because we're busy processing the things that matter. Like I need to pee. I'm dirty. I need to shower. I need to eat. And, you know, all those things that keep us alive. Um, and we rarely have time to sit down and contemplate, you know, and let those things surface. Um, which I think a lot of people have experienced where, you know, I don't know why I feel this way. I need to sit down and think about why I feel this way. And you can always come up with something, but sometimes, you know, your brain is doing something that you're not in control of. And uh, to me, I think that supports the idea that your consciousness is doing something much bigger and unobservable than you could ever access. Well, and, and, and it's even it's even deeper than that. Because even to pilot this bone mech with meat armor, I don't know how it, I don't know how I'm doing that. Right. right. So, so <laughs> cognitive scientist, Dr. John Verveke from, I think he's at the University of Toronto, does something with his students where he has them hold up a finger and then tells them to move it down and then ask them how they did that. Explain it you just did 
I'm not sitting here actively thinking that I need to fire this neuron to release this neurochemical to hit that train of neuroreceptors to fire the muscles in just the right way to flex down and then flex back up. I'm completely unconscious of all of those processes that are happening. And in fact, the more I think about it, the more debilitating and inhibitory it is. The more you think about the biological functions that you're doing to do a movement, the less graceful your movement is. The less you think about it, the more intuitive it is. Yeah, right? you see you see that so as well like, with people who have, you know, like a disability or something like cerebral palsy or some type of paralysis where they physically can learn to do those motions using a different path than the rest of us but they'll still you know like i learned how to walk but i'm still going to use my wheelchair because it takes i've got to live i can't just think you know deliberately this foot this foot this foot um, yeah yeah we can't spend time doing that we wouldn't be able to do anything and you know, same thing. I, I I tell my students all the time, like, how are you telling your body to digest food? What nutrients are you picking out in your stomach? Which ones are you discarding? Like, we've got no freaking clue. We're just along for the ride in a very real sense. But those biological processes aside, the fact of the matter is we do yearn for meaning. We do thrive for experience in a very real sense that is what it means to be alive is to experience right and two things one tangent and then one reconnector piece i had a thought a couple months ago thinking about um Dante's Inferno, the the poem, and the lowest ring of hell is a lake of ice where everything is frozen and static. The people trapped there have no agency. They're unable to move. There is no interaction. It's utterly and completely static. What would happen if... And this is going to be the wrong framework compared to everything that we talked about with infinite possibility and consciousness is fundamental up to this point, but I haven't resolved this to yet. What if all matter in reality hit zero degrees Kelvin, absolute zero, right? That's the, that's the scientific term for zero kinetic energy whatsoever. No motion. Everything is now static and frozen and locked in place unable to have an interaction or an experience right does that does that mean anything exists anymore is it just gone there's no it, there would be no possibility for an observer to observe that because everything is static right our biological processes would stop con if the consciousness exists after the biological processes it doesn't move because it's static it's unable to have an experience if there's nothing to have an experience, is there anything at all? Yeah. And that, that's that's not a question that we're going to answer here. I don't think that is an answerable question. 
other than the whole well there's still the molecules that are frozen blah 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 whatever um which might factually be true but they're arranged in that way still but they're not doing what they were doing before and that statement presupposes someone external from that locked system with which to observe those pieces and b functionally it still stands that there's no experience and no existence yeah nothing else would happen um now it would be the that ultimate was, like etch a sketch moment like in, it, one it, bit of energy back in and we're at just sketch <laughs> it's a fun thought experiment to play around with yeah. going back to what the whole point of this episode is which we've danced around but we haven't really talked about i think a majority if not all of the creation myths in mythology for the human species tell that story of consciousness being limited naturally and artificially to a point that it becomes meaningful and useful and can have experiences that are differentiated enough to be considered experiences. Here's what I mean by that. Look at the cosmology for ancient Samaria and what would become Babylon. I'm going to butcher a whole lot of the names, so I'm going to leave most of them out. But essentially what happens is you have the pantheon of early gods, both good and evil, championed by a specific deity. I want to say for the ancient Sumerian myth, it was the land and sky. But the important part here is the evildoer was Tiamat, the dragon of the oceans of chaos. And it took Marduk slaying Tiamat and separating the pieces into the world, so to speak, that created what we can inhabit. Here's the important part with that. Tiamat represents the undifferentiated chaos. And the god of order imposes those artificial boundaries as one would using a prompt in an AI art generator to take that undifferentiated chaos and run it through parameters and now it's ordered and can be meaningful and useful hence humanity can populate it i think they're describing the same thing that we were talking about with the infinite possibility space being narrowed and limited and now it's functional and useful and has meaning I think most of the origin stories and cosmologies of the ancient myths are that understanding, just in the language that they had with which to explain that understanding. 
I love that because it makes early creation myths equal to our theoretical physics, which is true in spirit. Like, what is that? Why is it doing that? Why are we yeah. here? In, in, I mean, think about it. The, the, the Marduk one is just the example that I've read about recently that, that sticks out in my mind, but I'm certain you can do a Google search and find plenty of origin stories that essentially the world begins from ordering chaos. Right. I mean, that's, that's the Greek story. That's Kronos and Zeus rendering right. order yes. out of chaos. Like that, that literally is the Titans represented infinite possibility. They represented chaos, anarchy, and it is the pantheon of gods on Olympus that set order to reality and now they're they're thriving at the top there i guess my next question would be as humans are we presupposed to think that way and which you know are we interpreting it this way because that's what our brains like to do that's the specific patterns that we find very satisfying and or are we interpreting are we right? it or are yeah or are we interpreting it that way because it correlates with reality right like you can tell we've all seen it and so we're all drawing the same conclusions which yeah and, and obviously this, there's this, no answer to that this is something i want to talk about with my philosophy club soon is you know the couple different methods of epistemology how do we know what we know the theories of knowledge you know, you have the convergence theory of truth or the co the correlation theory of truth, that which correlates with reality, the closest is the most true. Um, but then, you know, we also have the convergence theory of truth, where different theories converge is where the most reasonable truth can be found. Mm -hmm. You have the consensus theory of truth, that which everyone agrees and experiences similarly is the most true. Yeah. And, you know, the, the boundaries between and around that, they, they overlap tremendously. But where they overlap is not really where the concern is. The concern is where the little but vast differences between all of those are. That does make me think, like, having this tradition of a creation to explain these things and if we say that that's what we're doing you know today with learning about the universe at large and using the tools that we have that is that the point of the creation myth or is it just the jumping off point for the religion and like this is why we sacrifice a cow and it all goes back to this story and i think the function of it for that society i mean obviously we don't know we weren't there um and even like for like early christianity creationists we weren't there we really don't know what the purpose what the spirit of that those words in that order was because it's like you know receiving a text versus hearing it in person there's misinterpretations and then you take all the translations as well and so there's probably something that we're missing or, you know, 
something said with reverence or something said literally. And it's important to keep in mind too that the myths are heuristics. For example, it's extremely difficult to provide moral justification for foundational cultural values. By that, I mean explain in detail to somebody why people should get married or explain in detail to somebody why you shouldn't steal or murder or any of those other things. I had a conversation with a student a couple days ago where he was trying to give me freaking 10 bucks to give him a grade for the class for the day. And I kept telling <laughs> him no. And he was like, well, if no one would find out and you could get away with it, would you take it? And I was like, no, because I'm principled. And he was he, like, it, it, he struggled to get it for a minute, you know, to, to explain that honor is a thing in that we should be principled and that matters in such a way it's difficult to put into words yeah but it's easy to act out and we encapsulate those behaviors in stories and myths to intergenerationally pass on here's a framework for here is a starting point framework with which you can approach and interact reality and interact with other people. And if you follow this loose set of guidelines, it's not going to fix all your problems, but it's going to on average have predictably higher outcomes than others. Here's what I mean by that. I've started asking my students this a lot. Have you ever met a person that is constantly jealous of other people envious, selfish, and happy? <laughs> no. And it's difficult to explain why, because you should take care of yourself. Self-care is a very real thing and a very real need. And I think a lot of us today, myself as one of the biggest perpetrators, feel selfish when we do something for ourselves, even if it's necessary. So it's not intuitive to say that selfishness isn't beneficial and isn't good. Right. Rather, we have these stories about how this person enacted those behaviors and bad things happened as an easier way to get that point across that if you live your life jealous and envious and constantly comparing yourself to other people with what they have and finding yourself in a deficit, you are priming those parts of your brain that process negative thought and making the myelin sheath around those neurons thicker, thus reducing the force necessary to push that conductivity down. And so when your brain activates, it defaults to the path of least resistance, which is now the negative processing path of your brain. Right. That muscle that is strong. Yes. I, I tell that to my students. Like if you go to the gym and you only do squats, you can't expect your arms to get bigger. 
If you're only ever comparing yourself to other people and thinking negative thoughts about it, then that is the only part of your brain that gets more efficient and stronger. So when you have thoughts, it's going to default to that. Now I can have told them that and explained the neuroscience to them over the course of like, you know, an entire semester for them to actually get it. Or I can say, remember Johnny, he was selfish and his life sucked. That behavior encapsulated in myth is a much easier way to get the core essence of that point across. Right. The people in the story who get punished. Um, yeah, that's why like setting, telling a child rules is easier than letting them find out all of the rules on their own. Like this is a crosswalk. If you try and cross the road anywhere else, you might get hit by a car. That's good enough. Or you could just let them run into the road and they'll get hit by a car and they'll learn not to do that. But we can't do that. Everyone would be dead within like the day if we all stop following all of the rules that we follow. Like, I know not to touch the stove. I know I need to drink water. I'm not going to experience, I've never experienced dehydration in my life. I just know I need to drink water. And it's not, you know, about consequences. And that's not a very good one because your body will just tell you to do that. But um, the we don't need it's better if we don't know the consequences of the rule personally in order to follow it. And there well, are and, people who can't follow rules. Well, and, and we, we've talked, we've talked about that. I think we talked about it last episode of not the episode yeah. before rule governed behavior. And it's very valuable. It is. It's the reason why if someone goes out to the busy corner in times square and just stands there looking up, everybody that passes them looks up too. It's the same reason why, you know, we all kind of intuitively and instinctively know that theft is wrong, not because I've stolen something and gotten caught or I've had something stolen from me and felt the way that it felt, but every single person on the planet has contact with someone who has, whether firsthand or secondhand, you know, primary, secondary, or tertiary doesn't, doesn't much matter. All someone has to do is see the effects of something happening to somebody else, either good or bad. Right. And we That's can inform people, our behavior from that. People who've never had cancer get colonoscopies, not because they know how bad it is to have colon cancer, but because they know that they don't want it based mm -hmm. on what they've been told. Well, do we need another break and to keep going? Or are you ready to wrap it up? I think I think this is a good spot to stop. I think we'll force it if we I push agree. it any farther. And we're almost I out agree. of time, so that's it's it'll be pretty good. Um, and then we can do either a mythology part three or shift topics altogether. That is it, 